0: Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Solving the Black Dahlia Murder On January 15, 1947, the body of a young, beautiful woman, that of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, was found by the side of the road in a quiet neighborhood in L.A. The body had been bisected, washed clean, and the upper torso posed in an unusual way. This was the beginning of a case that captured the imagination of the world. Ms. Short was given the moniker Black Dahlia by the press. Her killer was never brought to justice. The Black Dahlia case remains L.A.'s oldest open but unsolved murder. That is, until now. Steve Hodell, author of the book Black Dahlia Avenger, believes he knows who killed the Black Dahlia and he joins me today. You're going to want to stay around for this one. Welcome, Steve, to Murder Most Foul.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you, Jim. Let's start, Steve, with your your background. Okay. Uh, um, I was uh, born here in Los Angeles. Uh, did a quick stint four years in the Navy at 17 to 21. Got out and did what most of my age did back then, which was apply and become a LA cop. So I joined LAPD uh, back in 63, was a rookie. And uh, my career went from 63 to 86, just shy of 24 years. Uh, I worked four or five years in uniform patrol, then went to detectives at Hollywood, uh, which was one of the divisions or you may call them precincts back there. Um, And basically stayed in Hollywood, worked all the different tables, robbery, uh, burglary, sex crimes, juvenile, and then graduated, kind of gravitated to uh, homicide. So I spent 17 years in homicide at Hollywood Division, 300 murder cases, um, and uh, basically retired in 86. Moved up north to Bellingham, Washington, which is kind of the last stop before uh, Canada. And uh, two small boys wanted to get them out of the big city and the crime, raised them in Bellingham and uh, basically uh, became a PI, a licensed private investigator, 24 years for the prosecution. Then I started working 24 for the, for the defense. And uh, became a criminal uh, defense investigator and basically uh, working in Bellingham, Washington. and. Uh, Then I got that 2 a.m. phone call uh, in 1999, which uh, started me on an incredible journey, which I'm still on for the past 22 years. And um, basically, uh, I got involved in uh, the Black Dahlia murder, which was an infamous crime in Los Angeles, uh, probably our most famous unsolved uh, L- in LAPD, and um, I started working it, and uh, eventually it led me to uh, where I am today. I've written five books on it, which is really one ongoing investigation. Uh, new things kept unfolding as I got into it. The Black Dahlia murder occurred on January 15, 1947, in uh, an area of Los Angeles called Leimert Park, which is about four miles south of Hollywood. And if you want, I can go into a little description on the crime. So uh, basically the victim, uh, a, a woman by the name of Betty Bursinger, was taking her three-year-old child in a, in a stroller to market. She's walking down this uh, street, residential street and she looks over in a vacant lot and she sees what she thought initially was a mannequin. And then she looks closer and she says, my God, that could be a body. That's, is that a woman? Anyway, she hurries down about a block, door knocks a neighbor, calls the police and said, you know, it's either a woman or a mannequin out there, but it's going to scare the kids on the way to school. LAPD responds, the uniform responds to the scene. And this begins the most incredible murder we've ever had. Uh, what, What do they discover? a young Jane Doe woman, no ID, nude, and she's bisected at the waist, Body's washed clean, all all kinds of signs of uh, trauma to the body. And she's carefully posed in this vacant lot, maybe three feet off the sidewalk. Detectives respond, they begin to do it. She's a Jane Doe initially. They send her fingerprints back to the FBI and they get a hit right away within hours. And her name is Elizabeth Short. She's from Medford, Massachusetts. She's, she's 22 years old. And uh, basically this begins uh, the sensational investigation. Uh, no clues, no suspects really to start with. Um, they start doing a background check, find out she worked at a... Uh, PX up at uh, Camp Cook, which was about 40 miles north of LA. This was court during, during the night, right after the war. And um, they start doing a background check on her. She's a very attractive young, young woman. Um, they start, you know, they get an ID from the parents and stuff. And basically, um, what they discover is not a lot. They, they put out a poster, wanted information. And this will become confused later on, but they put it out as a wanted information requesting it. And what they discover is that basically she was kind of a, a loner in some sense. She was uh, really looking to fall in love and marry Lieutenant Wright, if you will, you know, during the war. And um, she dated mostly military men, soldiers, sailors, and, um, uh, they contacted and were able to locate some of her friends and, and roommates and, and got some statements from them. And she was kind of, didn't really have a job. She was just kind of floating around here and there, uh, dating guys, uh, going out to dinner with them and stuff, but really they couldn't come up with much of anything other than, um, the fact that she'd been in Hollywood for, uh, a number of months. A lot, of, a lot of the men said, gee, you should think about getting into the movies, that type of thing. But it was coming from them, not her. And, uh, there, you know, one of the problems with this case, once I really got into the weeds, was that there's so many myths uh, and hack writers stepping on each other and creating. I spend a whole chapter rehabilitating her, her uh, reputation and character. Uh, they paint her as a doper and a, an a alcoholic and a, you know, a prostitute. None of that's true. You know, she was basically uh, just a young woman looking to fall in love with Lieutenant Wright and live happily ever after. So what started it off, of course, were the headlines with this horrific crime scene. You know, a bisected body, washed clean, all kinds of trauma. Uh, When they got into the, the experts at the coroner's office said probably four or five hours of torture, she was tied, ligature. You know, I'm not going to go into all the details on the trauma, but it was it was horrific. And then, of course, the next thing that happened was um, one of the newsmen started digging into her, trying to trace her movements and stuff. And he he found out that she was hanging. She hung out at a soda fountain in Long Beach, which is just south of Los Angeles. And the military guys in there used to call her the Black Dahlia. And then when she'd come in and the name comes from the movie that was out that summer called the Blue Dahlia and uh, Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, and uh, the Blue Dahlia was a noir *Who Done It*, And uh, it was actually the Blue Dahlia was a bar, not a person. But, um, but anyway, the name stuck. So you've got this horrific crime, sensational crime. You've got this incredible name, the Black Dahlia. And it spun off from there and it just, you know, took off nationwide headlines for 30 days. And back then you had a situation where the cops and the news guys kind of had, had a good relationship, symbiotic. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll mention your name, we'll promote you to Lieutenant Sergeant, just to, uh, give us the information. And they were oftentimes ahead of the cops on the investigation. They had more money, more resources and stuff so they turned up a kind of a lot different information on her nothing hardcore but but some you know kind of background and information and they were each trying to outscoop the other if you will so you had six major newspapers so it was huge news then it after a month or so it kind of died down and and became la's most famous who it So basically, uh, a lot of suspects, you know, uh, uh, there were 50 or so people arrested for the crime, you know, questioned and release that type of thing back then. And uh, uh, but no real no real pr- good suspects to speak of. And, it, you know, it kind of became from there, it became a legend and and uh, beca- and remains to this day officially unsolved. So. One of the interesting things is that I didn't go to this case, it came to me. I'm happily retired, 14 years into retirement in Bellingham. My boys are going through high school and just finishing. And um, basically I get that 2 a.m. phone call and it's my uh, uh, June, my father's wife. uh, And she says, um, your father's, you know, the paramedics are here. They they had just relocated in 1990 back from uh, Asia to the United States. So dad was, they were living in a high rise, 39th floor penthouse suite in downtown San Francisco. And uh, he was a medical doctor. And um, basically she says, Steve, come down. The paramedics are here. Your father's just been pronounced dead in the apartment. I go, oh my God. So I catch the next flight down do all the things you have to do with the passing of a father. We had become, though we had been estranged for many years uh, As a, after he left, in the last decade of his life, we became very close. I, I'd see him. I'd go down and see him. He'd come up to see me in Bellingham. And it was, it was a, you know, he was never a warm, fuzzy dad, but he was a remarkable individual. And uh, we'll, we'll go into his biographics uh, here in, in a minute. But Basically, I fly down, do all the things you have to do. And I'm sitting there with June. uh, And she uh, this is like day two or day three of of me being down there. And she says, well, I thought your father might want you to have this. She hands me a small book. It's like five, three by five inch uh, photo book. And I'm looking through it. And it's got photos of me and my mother as children and and, uh, relatives and stuff. And I come across a beautiful young woman, I said, uh, who is this dark haired woman, and I show it to June and she says, I don't know somebody your father knew from a long time ago. And to this day, I can't explain why but so for some reason, Black Dahlia comes to mind. Now I didn't know anything about the Black Dahlia case, other than it was a famous unsolved I didn't even know the victim's name. and. I had seen pictures of it when I went through the police academy. It was one of the things they show you the crime scene and stuff, but that's, and I had seen a 1975 movie called who is the black Dahlia with Lucy Arnaz and um, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. (laughs) And the photo looked identical to that as she was presented in that. So maybe that bit of the source to this day, I don't know, but it just came and went, I didn't pay much attention to it. And, um, then a day later, I'm talking to my half-sister Tamar, same father, different mothers. And uh, we're talking about the great man and his remarkable life and his passing and what a, an amazing person he was. And she says to me, Well, you know, he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And I said, What? What the hell are you talking about, Tamar? Where the hell is this coming from? And I had maybe 20, 30 minutes of conversation with her in the last 50 years. So, you know, it's not like we had had a close relationship or anything. She kind of, um, got into drugs, sex, rock and roll, spun out of control part of the fifties scene. Anyway, I said, where is this coming from? She says, well, he didn't do it, but, but, uh, that's what the cops told me. I said, Oh my God. I said, well, there's no way. I said, I can, I can show he had nothing to do with this in 10 seconds. And, um, so, you know, basically Tamar and I are talking and she comes up with this incredible statement our father was a suspect in the black. I said, no way. So I said, I'd be, I'd be able to establish it. show he had nothing to do with it. So okay, tell us okay. a little bit about your father. A remarkable individual, uh, born in Los Angeles in 1907. Uh, at age nine, he's a musical prodigy playing his own piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium. Uh, his, his music teacher says he's got a huge career in music as a pianist, a great pianist. Um, he, my grandparents were Russian Jews uh, from, <clears throat> uh, basically, they came through Ellis Island at, in 1901 and then came out west to Los Angeles. My grandmother, my uh, paternal grandmother, was a dentist in Paris in 1901 which is very unusual for a woman to be a dentist. Uh, my grandfather uh, was a, uh, in, in, into insurance and banking. Anyway, they came through, came out here, they built a home in the Northeast section of Los Angeles. Uh, George is born in 1907, and at nine he's playing piano concerts. He goes to South Pasadena High and uh, gets the highest scores in the state uh, highly highly uh, intelligent, an IQ of 186, one point above Einstein. That skips a generation, by the way. My my boys are in my boys are in good shape though, and um, uh, goes to he graduates at 14 from South Pasadena High. Goes to Caltech at the age of 15, enters Caltech, and uh, he uh, not only is he highly intellectual and musical prodigy. He's also sexually precocious. He has an affair with a professor's wife at Caltech. She gets pregnant and uh, she goes east. It breaks up her marriage. She goes east to have the baby. George at 16 now it follows her back and says, I love you. I want to marry you. She laughs in his face and says, George, you've ruined my life. You're a child yourself. You know, get out of my life. Go away. So he comes back with his tail between with his Tail between his legs, uh, and he starts working. He gets a job as a cabby, a yellow cab. Fakes his ID. He's now like 17, and he's passing himself off. He had to be 21 to be a get a chauffeur's license, so he's passing himself off at 21, dr- driving a yellow cab uh, with a young wannabe lawyer out of uh, downtown L.A. Out of the Biltmore. By the the partner is a guy named. Plugging uh, uh, his name. Uh, Parker William Parker, who will be, uh, become our most famous police chief. So they're basically uh, driving cab. He then gets a job as a crime reporter with the L.A. Record newspaper, <clears throat> which was one of the big six newspapers back then. And he starts writing. This is during Prohibition. Starts writing around with the uh, homicide with the homicide guys going to crime scenes, writing these tabloid stories, the bloody ace of spades next to the body, that sort of thing. Does that for a year and then um, basically uh, decides, uh, well, he starts double dating as a teenager. He's still a teenager. He starts double dating with a young man by the name of John Houston, And um, John Houston at that time was just the son of the famous actor, stage and screen uh, actor, Walter Houston and John would go on to become the famous you know, the, the famous film director, one of the greatest we've had. Anyway, at that time, they're teenagers, they're double dating, and John is dating a woman by the name of Emilia, and George is dating a woman by the name of Dorothy. And a couple of weeks into it, they switch. John falls in love with Dorothy, they run off, they get married and go to New York, and George and Emily are looking at each other, and he says, "I guess it's you and me, babe." She gets pregnant. They go north to uh, they go north to Berkeley. He goes enters pre med at Berkeley four years, then across the bay to UCSF San Francisco. Gets his medical. Uh, has a couple of more affairs. Has another affair with another Dorothy. She gets pregnant. Uh, well, Emily has a a son with him by in 1928 by the name of Duncan. And then he has an affair with another Dorothy. She gets pregnant and Tamar is born in 35. So he's living with the two women, has the two small babies and, he's, and he graduates from UCSF San Francisco. Other, another gift he had was he was a natural born surgeon, amazing eye hand coordination. All of his professors are vying to be the, for him to be their assistant because he so, has such a natural ability. He graduates, he takes off on his own, leaves the, kid, the families and goes to Arizona and starts doctoring. Well, first he gets a job as a sole surgeon at a logging camp. Then he goes from there and gets a job as a health officer for New Mexico and, and Arizona and uh, basically doctors there for a couple of years, comes back to LA and applies to the LA Health Department quickly rises to the top, becomes the chief venereal disease control officer for all of LA County. By this time, seven years have passed and Dorothy, Houston's Dorothy, after seven years of marriage, comes back, hooks back up with George and my older brother, Mike, Michael, is born in 39. I come along in 41 and my younger brother, Kelvin, comes along in 42. So he's got the three sons, Dorothy, she was a very beautiful, strikingly beautiful uh, woman, highly intelligent, probably smarter than George and and John put together. Anyway, he then buys this fantastic Mayan temple in the heart of Hollywood, known as the Soden House, built by Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. Lloyd Wright, son of Frank. We all move in to this amazing Mayan castle, and basically everything's fine for the next four or five years. And in 1949, while we're still living there, there's a knock at the door, LAPD, Dr. Hodel, yes, you're under arrest for incest. (laughs) And basically, uh, Tamar, uh, who was born in 35, was now 14. And she came down that summer to live with us. And She runs away. She's picked up by LAPD and they're going to return her back. They said, Why'd you run away? She says, Well, because my life is so hectic and unbelievable, you know, chaotic. I said, What are you talking about? She discloses that she had sex with our father and some other people. Uh, So basically, she's sent to juvenile hall, retained as a witness. They arrest dad for the incest and the headlines. Uh, You know, head of LA County Health, arrested for incest. He gets he gets uh, Jerry Geisler, who was a famous one of the famous uh, defense attorneys of probably the top in the nation, uh, represented all the stars. He gets him to defend him. There's a three week trial. They come back. uh, Basically, Geisler paints her with a pathological liar brush. It's 14 year old. Couldn't happen. Jury trial comes back not guilty with that he takes off shortly after that he takes off and goes to uh leaves the country goes to hawaii and uh then i kind of write a chapter where mom and us three boys the gypsy years we kind of you know go off and mom raises us uh dads out of the picture
0: at this point at the point of that arrest um and trial um so again i'm just trying to keep the date straight so how many years after the uh, uh, Black Dahlia
1: murder was this? Two years, so, so it was 1949 was the trial. So it'd been two years, yeah. um, you know, during that. And um, so dad's basically, he goes to Hawaii and starts doctoring to the criminally insane uh, and becomes a psychiatrist. From there, he, he marries a wealthy Filipina, they go to Manila, he has four more children with her, they're married like four years or five years. That breaks up, and he eventually marries June, who, uh, who was a, a Japanese. He was his office uh, manager in Japan, so he's now a, he gets into market research with his as a psychiatrist. He becomes the leading authority in all of Asia in market research, which was brand new at that time, and uh, beca- has offices in 20 countries and becomes the leading expert in market research throughout Asia and Europe. And um, eventually in 1990, after this, long, of course, he's coming back regularly every year, every two years, he's coming back to law, to the United States, San Francisco, LA, New York. Anyway, um, eventually in 1990, they relocate June and he re- relocate back to San Francisco. That's when I start seeing him and I have the last 10 years of his life we become quite close. So, you know, there are those who say, Oh, the, you know, th- this is a daddy dearest thing. And not at all. It's, I was, I loved my father. I, I, you know, what's not to love, you know, he had all of these incredible gifts at any rate um, I started out to show there's no way he had anything to do with this. Uh, you your
0: know. your initial uh, uh, after being shown the picture, your initial reaction is to squelch any, you know, claim that he is the murderer, not uh, let me, which makes sense. I wouldn't think, you know, a child of someone's going to try to prove that he did do it, rather try to prove that these are all myths and he had nothing to do with it.
1: Yeah, and it was more more from what Tamar had told me on that phone call when she said that, you know, they that when they placed her in detention and on the, uh, uh, you know, uh, runaway arrest, you know, basically, uh, that's really what started me looking at it um, and saying, I, there's no way I can show he had nothing to do with it. So that's what I do. I mean, I, you know, so you've got the, you've got the son who's, uh, who loves his father and you've got the trained homicide detective. And it's kind of a parallel investigation. You know, I don't want to mix them up because, you know, I want to follow the evidence, which I'm sure will show he had nothing to do with it. And at the same time, You've got the loving son who loves his father and is determined to also. But I had to keep them separate. And
0: and to be clear, you're an outsider at this point. I mean, you have retired. You've retired, so you're not You're not still at that. When you pick this up, are you still with the police or have you retired?
1: No, I've been retired for 14 years.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so, so, so you have to do this from the outside like any... Exactly. I mean, you have your friends and you you know, you know, the direction to go where you should, the DA's off, where you should get, where you can get files and stuff, but you are just like a reporter or something. You are not uh, embedded in the police department.
1: Yeah. And, and 14 years in retirement, all my, pretty, pretty much all of my associations are long gone. And uh, so I have no, nowhere to go with, you know, that. And, and, and basically I'm on my own, just as any, any civilian would be. There's no, you know, uh, they're not going to pull records and stuff for me. It's just not done. So, But basically, I, I, so I follow the evidence, and I spend two years investigating with it. And basically, much to my surprise, I come up with, my, you know, my first mistake was following the evidence. <laughs> and that took me to a very, very solid case that, in fact, Dr. George Hill O'Dell did kill her. So I go in secret to the an active head deputy district attorney uh, in LA, present my case, graphics, evidence, all of that. And he studies it for about five months. And uh, it's, uh, the head DA was named Steve Kay, and he worked the Manson case with Bugliosi. He was co-counsel and convicting Manson, and the fa- he did all the family himself. So highly respected, straight arrow, straight shooter. And he comes back and he says, oh, well, first of all, let me say this. Once I got into the investigation, uh, much to my surprise, George O'Dell, based on my investigation, did do it. But much to my surprise, there were serial crimes. I came across about a dozen different murders, uh, which I call the L.A. Lone Woman Murders, in Los Angeles between 1943 and when he split in 1950. And these are clearly related. Uh, And so I present my case to Kay with all of these additional murders along with the Black Dahlia. He comes back and says, I would file, he says, I would file, based on your investigation, I would file on two, if the witnesses were present, I'd file on two. I'd file on Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. uh, And I would also file on another case, the Jean French case, which occurred just three weeks after Her body was also posed on a lot, uh, carefully posed on a lot. And in lipstick, the killer wrote an obscenity FU and signed it BD for Black Dahlia. And he says, I would file. And he says, I would win those in court. I'm confident I would. He says, you're probably right about the other eight or nine. But he says, not quite enough evidence. So, you know, but I would file on those. With that, I said, "Okay, well, I... So I I'll, I'll make it public. So I sat down and wrote my book and, uh, it came out and, and, you know, it came out in 2003 and then it's, uh, the paperback came out a year later with new information and the new inf- information really, really locked it and sealed the case. And, uh,
0: Now let's uh, that's a a great arc. Let's talk. Let's back up just a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about the evidence that was there at the time and uh, was, of course, available to the police at the time. But you were then able to look at it again. Let's talk about the notes, which they started with the cutting out of the newspaper, but then became handwritten. Right. The notes and the the writ, the writing on of, with lipstick on a purse, and how with handwriting analysis and other uh, activities with those notes, they were that was able to put them together. Uh, at least the lipstick crime. Uh, and, and Dahlia was clearly with the handwriting. So tell us a little bit both about the, the handwriting analysis of postcards where seemingly someone was admitting to the crime and semi-taunting catch-me-stop-me thing.
1: So you know, as I got into the case and started looking at the evidence and examining it and what was reported back then in 47, I discover the killer um, basically was sending in taunting notes to the police postcards, and they were cut, like, cut and paste notes uh, on cards, um, handwriting disguised, kind of a catch me if you can, I'll surrender for $10,000, you know, have changed, and then he says, I've changed my mind, you know, to hell with you. And I'm going through all of these, actually, my girlfriend is sending me up old newspapers uh, from Los Angeles, I'm still in Bellingham initially. And I'm going through them, and she sends me up one, and I look at the front page, and it's undisguised handwriting. And it says, turning myself in on January 29th, had my fun at the police, signed Black Dahlia Avenger. And I look at that, and it's my father's handwriting. I mean, you know your handwriting, your listeners know their parents' handwriting, and i no, my father's handwriting it's a kind of an unusual block printing and I say to myself well this can't what this can't be he can't be the suspect what the hell's going on here is he pretending to be you know I'm still saying no no way so so basically um, uh, then the then there's of course the photograph which I had been shown which is very similar in appearance it's been very controversial a lot of people say it's not her a lot of people say it is her but uh uh, basically, uh, later on, I actually submitted it to a facial recognition, uh, and they came back with a 97% probability it is her. So, but which doesn't really matter because as I got into it, we find out they were actually dating each other. A lot of uh, uh, some of the witnesses from that back time, uh, I would get into and I would discover that actually uh, they, uh, he was the prime suspect all along. And they, friends that knew him uh, suspected it. There were a couple of uh, famous uh, screenwriters who were friends of George's. Uh, Ben Hecht was a famous screenwriter from uh, highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood during those years. And he actually came out in the newspapers in 47 and said, I know the name of the killer. And uh, you know, what he, you know, people are gonna be very surprised once they find out who it is. A second screenwriter by the name of Steve Fisher, also a buddy of theirs came out and said basically the same thing. He says, uh, when he's arrested, people are, are gonna be a total shock. So, and plus there were a lot of indications. Um, there was Maddie Comfort who I discovered was a witness who would become a witness and be interviewed by the DA's investigators. Um, But basically, uh, in addition to that, of course, the biggie, another biggie was that the fact that it was a surgeon that did it, okay? It wasn't a meat cutter, it wasn't, you know, it was a skilled surgeon and the procedure is actually called a hemicorporectomy. And it's the only way you can divide a body in half without sawing through bone. And you have to go between the second and third lumbar vertebrae and it was very skilled uh, even the coroner said I, I couldn't do as good a job as was done on this dividing the body it has to be a skilled surgeon of course we know that dad was a sole surgeon in a logging camp uh, in his early in his early days and stuff so that limits the, the pool suspect pool right there as a, as a surgeon um, and then of course the handwriting. Independent of my own identification, I went to, uh, I removed all indications of what the, who the crime was, and I had a a court qualified expert review it. And she came back with about four or five positive handwriting compared to my father's known handwriting, including the message written on the nude body and lipstick. She actually made that too, my father's handwriting too. So you've, you've got the handwriting and, and uh, you've got the surgeon. <clears throat> and this would eventually, the book would come out, become a New York Times bestseller and a lot of controversy. Uh, you know, oh, it's a daddy dearest, this sort of thing. But then of course, um, I went to Steve Lopez who was one of the top columnists uh, at the LA Times back then. And he still is, I guess. <laughs> And I said, uh, take a look at this. And I gave him the book just before it was published, before it came out. He reviews it, and he goes to LAPD, says, hey, there's this Hodel guy, retired cop. Says his father is the Black Dahlia. LAPD says, go away. We don't talk about unsolved cases or open cases. Open, it hasn't been touched in 50 years. Anyway, um, so then he goes to DA Steve Cooley, and he says, hey, Hodel, and the DA says, well, I'm not spending a dime of taxpayers' money on a 50-year-old case. He says, but, you know, there is a file uh, in the safe on the Black Dahlia. Would you like to see that? Yeah. <laughs> they, go down to the, they go down to the safe. They unlock it. Uh, Cooley gives Lopez this box of Black Dahlia box. He goes upstairs, opens it up, out follows a photograph of Dr. George Hill O'Dell. So he says, whoa, he was a suspect in the murders. And uh, anyway, he does a quick, and, he had a quick column where he does a quick and dirty thing and says, you know, well, he was a suspect, blah, blah, blah. So I go down, uh, maybe a month later, I go down and say, you know, can I see the files too? And I, Cooley says, well, I, I guess I have to let you, I let him. So I spend six months reviewing them. And what do we find? We find this incredible story where actually dad was the prime suspect from the get go 17 detectives from LAPD and the DA's office jointly form a task force. They go out. They pick up George Hodel. They take him down for an interview because they find out he he was dating Elizabeth Short. And while he's there, they go out to our the Soden house, our Mayan temple, and they bug it. They take they take uh, microphones and they actually embed them in the walls, not phone tap. They actually do live. They run a hard wire through the basement out to the phone lines. They run that to Hollywood detectives to the basement and they sit there two teams 24 seven for the next six weeks. And, um, uh, what do they get? They get basically these live conversations where dad is talking to a, actually an accomplice friend of his, not in the black Dahlia, but, a, another, uh, another, Baron Haringa is his name. And they're talking and he says, Well, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. My secretary's dead. Turns out he was investigated two years earlier for the murder, the suspected forced overdose of his secretary, uh, Ruth Spalding. And um, they couldn't couldn't make a case on him. He then goes on to describe how and when he killed his secretary, uh, Ruth Spalding. He describes that, describes taking her to the hospital after overdosing her. And once she becomes comatose, he takes her to the hospital and it's too late. She dies within 20 minutes. Uh, He goes on to saying, this is the best payoff between law enforcement I've seen, you know, never confess, Uh, you know, basically uh, the FBI has talked to me last week. Uh, they got a picture of that girl. I thought I disposed of all of them. And then he mentions Black Dahlia. And then basically shortly after that, he's in the wind and leaves the country.
0: Now, I'm sorry, you said payoff. So are we assuming then that he, he bribed somebody? You mean
1: we said this is the best well, payoff or? Yeah, oh, absolutely, B- between law enforcement, he says. So, and basically you have to understand that LA back then was a real life LA confidential. I mean, it was, you know, corruption city. I mean, the cops were, the reason we didn't have any organized crime in LA was because the cops were in control. They were playing the role of organized crime. I mean, payoffs, they were running prostitution rings, um, all sorts, all sorts of things. And, Dad
0: and wasn't there, wasn't there an abortion protection,
1: protection of abortion doctors or something? Right. There was, you paid 500 a month and you were protected by LAPD from getting arrested. Of course, abortions back then were a felony. And you went to prison and he, on the tape again, he says, I, you know, talks about performing abortions at his clinic. So on and on, there's, there's a massive amount of, of uh, material and, you know, it, where he implicates himself in the actual crimes. And um, so with that, uh, basically uh, I of course added that to the paperback, the book was already out. So we didn't have that information, but then, you know, since then ongoing, it just keeps unfolding. I keep, uh, that's why there are five books because it's basically one investigation that's ongoing investigation. And I, I update with all of this new material. Some
0: of let, these, me, let me ask you, do you have any idea, um, I've never in all these cases I do, I don't try to get into the head of a murderer, some of them make sense, others are so uh, psychotic it makes no sense, but do you understand the, the cutting in half part? Does that anywhere, any of your investigation give any inkling why that was done?
1: Yeah, the, the, probably the most amazing part of this investigation, as I got deep into it was I discovered that what dad's crime signatures were. Now, you know, oftentimes in that, that high intellect, you all oftentimes have problems. And uh, he was, dad was no exception. In fact, he was more like the rule. In other words, he had, um, it's murder and that it all is wrapped around uh, murder as a fine art. And what I discovered was that not dad was actually on his victims. He was actually posing the bodies and doing things to them that were actually mimicking uh, artwork of his friends. Man Ray uh, was a surrealist photographer uh, and close friend of dad's. He came to the regular, came to the parties all the time. He lived just a mile away uh, from 1940 to 50. They were very close. And actually he was our family photographer. I include a lot of Man Ray photographs of us children and mother and stuff. Anyway, uh, again, the surrealists believed there was no difference between the dream state and the waking state. Well, Man Ray and the other surrealists, uh, you know, talked the talk, but Dad walked the walk. And what he did in the Black Dahlia Elizabeth Short case was he actually uh, mimicked a couple of Man Ray's well known photographs. One was the Minotaur, where Man Ray has a woman's bisected body. Uh, posed with the hands above in a, in a position like this, which is known as the minotaur position Dad actually reproduced that on the body of Elizabeth short. Uh, he did cuttings on it that would indicate other of Man Ray's artworks, crisscross hatches that were another, uh, painting by Man Ray and the minotaur and the lovers, which are the lips. He actually surgically cut her lips from ear to ear and, uh, this is a famous, you see it, Man Ray, famous photogra- uh, painting where he has these lips floating above the horizon, uh, you know. So, and it gets, it, it's very twisted and, and uh, it was all part of Dad's, uh, you know, psychopathy. He was, he was just, you know, totally, um, you know, it was just totally bizarre. And I've now linked about six different paintings and artworks to, of surrealists to dad's crime scenes uh, that was okay. just one, one of the,
0: crime the scenes. the the fifty thousand dollar question um what uh, obviously you're sitting here talking to me like a grounded human being how, how how do you how do you process this as as, as your life you know again it's not a, a mommy dearest book so it wasn't easy to write um so where where are you on it
1: yeah, well, I've, I've been through every <clears throat> possible emotion you can go through over the years. It's now been, what, 22 years? And um, the deeper I got, the more horrific the, the, the crimes were. Uh, I, I'm now, you know, we're at 25 crimes from basically 1940 to, through uh, the present, uh, through 1970, he did. And their crimes, I discovered, you know, not only was he a serial killer, not only did the crimes occur, in there were crime, three crimes in Chicago. One of those victims, a little girl, he performed a uh, hemicorporectomy on and posed her body exactly the same. This was a year before the Dahlia. Anyway, I've uncovered all of these crimes, and I, you know, I looked, tried to look at the triggers. And there were a lot of triggers there that were became quite apparent to me. Uh, his mother was extremely controlling. Uh domineering. Uh, he would go in and say, Mom, I finished my lessons. Can I go play baseball with the boys? No, Georgie, you're a pianist, not a baseball player. You'll hurt your hands. I suspect there was incest, probably, if not from his mother, from some close family remember, uh, member. And and the rejection of the professor's wife, rejection at school because he was so far advanced between with his peers. All of these came together in a perfect storm with this exceptionally high. So, you know, basically, you know, I've been through every emotion you can go through. Anger, hatred, uh, I've been through it all. And now I'm just left with a terrible sadness. You know, I, I'm just, you know, uh, I look at his life and this, this is a man who could have cured cancer. He could have done anything. He had the, all the potential in the world. and this And I basically now look at it as a Jekyll and Hyde. And I love the Dr. Jekyll, the good part. And the Mr. Hyde, the monster within him was the stronger. And basically uh, he he ruled. We even hear in some of dad's uh, communications and writings, I can't control this thing inside of me, help me, stop me before I kill more. So you hear this voice, but it it never dominates. It's always the, the weaker. Yeah, I have two sons, uh, both in their 40s now, and, uh, you know, kind of mixed emotions. I, You know, the one, I think my older boy thinks, holy cow, my grandfather's a serial killer. This is terrible. And the other boy says, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> you know.
0: Um, so based on ages, did they ever meet him?
1: Oh, yes. They, they met him in, as small children, five, six, seven, eight. But it was always... know he was a very formal reserved uh distant so it's not like they had any real feeling of connection with their grandfather it was like he was always this presence that would pass through town and say you know get your brothers and your you know together and we'll have a an hour dinner or something you know it was always you know very reserved and and very uh you know he was a man behind an iron mask you know i mean he of course, I had no clue that he had all this background. So, you know, I just thought he was a, that was just part of his personality. And, um, and, but he had this presence, not only was he extremely good looking, I mean, women loved him, you know, uh, he had this kind of presence that, like the Pope, if you're in a room with a Pope, you have this kind of awe, you're in awe of him, and everything focuses on him. Well, Dad had that kind of ability and charm, and he was, you know that's what made him such a uh, a terrific predator. You know, is he was a doc- what can be safer than a doctor? You know, handsome, he had this beautiful speaking voice. You know, he actually was a radio announcer in his youth, amongst all his other gifts. So you know, basically, but I had no no clue. I knew he was you know kind of cold and reserved, but I was absolutely sure that he w- would be incapable of such crimes. And so, you know, uh, at a young age, uh, Tamar, actually, she became pregnant at 15, not, not father, but somebody else. And, uh, she kind of flipped out. She was living in San Francisco, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Uh, and she hooked up with actually my younger brother, Kelvin introduced her to Michelle Phillips, who was I think 14 or 15 at the time. And, uh, here in LA, and they became best buds. Michelle took off with her and they go up to San Francisco, the hungry eye, the whole scene there. And, and basically, of course, Michelle will become part of the mamas and papas and actually godmother to Tamar's. She had Tamar had, uh, children, love, peace, and joy. Uh, That, you know, that that gives you an idea of where she was coming from back then, and um, uh, Michelle became godmother to those children, and uh, they were best friends, basically, for their whole life. Tamar died about. When has it been? About six years ago. Eight oh. years. Ago. That was going to be my next question: whether yeah. she was still with yeah. us. But, but she was. Yeah. Uh, she was alive for all of, all of this, uh, and and very grateful that, that I was able to establish that that pathological liar brush that she was painted with, was not true. Was you know totally false.
0: Well, you know, we're always looking for a happy hour, of silver lining, and yeah, I guess that exactly.
1: did. Yeah, she was remarkable. She knew. You know, I mean, she knew everybody—not uh, uh, just uh, the mamas and papas. She was part of that, but she knew, you know, from San Francisco and everything. I mean, she knew all of all of uh, the greats back in that time period. And she was a she was a force of her own. She was really remarkable. Not only was she very attractive, but she was very smart. And you know, that combination together, she was best friends with Lenny Bruce and just you know the whole thing. So. Uh, so basically as of now I'm just finishing writing uh, the early years which are dad's crimes from the 20s and the 30s and and uh, I, I've just finished completing that and basically uh, he didn't wake up one day at age 40 and say I think I'll be a serial killer so I knew there were crimes before and I've just finished now uh, what two two year investigation and That'll be coming out. We're making a, uh, they're adapting my books to a, a documentary miniseries, And, and uh, basically uh, we're, I was just up in San Francisco filming for a day uh, up there. And um, basically uh, they've done, they've got 40 hours of interviews in the can with me. So, yeah. you know, next year, hopefully we'll come out with a five part mini series.
0: Um, is the uh, Mayan temple still there. I mean, it's not. Oh, yeah. Been, yeah.
1: yeah. So sudden house is there. And it's actually been completely remodeled inside. This, the exterior looks the same. But it's been gutted and everything is, you know, modernized. And it just, I think it just sold for 5 million. And, and uh, uh, it's been featured. In fact, it's been featured in it's a real character in its own right. It's it was featured in LA Confidential, the movie. Yep. Uh, there were scenes in there inside the house. Uh, the Aviator scenes inside there—that was actually uh, Ava Gardner's home in the in the film The Aviator—and you know, so it's got it's got its own—it's a character of its own, and it plays a very important role in in Black Dahlia Avenger too.
0: Now, pro- the um, that,
1: that was the actual murder scene, really.
0: Oh, it's just been established, obviously, that yeah, that didn't do it on the street, you know,
1: cutting people well, in half. More than more than that, I've actually connected physical evidence from the Franklin House. To the crime scene, uh, uh, there were the body was tra- transferred from a, at that time unknown location to the crime scene on 50-pound sacks of cement and and manure sacks, empty sacks that were left mm-hmm. by the body. I've been able to establish I, in in the uh, UCLA archives, I went to the Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. files. He's got a file there in George Odell, and in that file it actually had the receipts for these. 50 pound bags of cement dated that same within three days of the mur- uh, murder. So I've actually been able to connect the uh, physical evidence to the from the Franklin house or the Soden house to the scene. We also had a cadaver dog alert to human remains. Uh, we did a search in the basement and he alerted to not rat, dead rats, only specific for human remains and a dog rem- for four different locations. One of the main things, as you know, people are curious about is why would they cover it up? And uh, the why is a very important. So basically, uh, so at, they're doing the stakeout. The, stake, the stakeout at the Soden House, or what I call the Franklin House, our home. Um, but basically, during their stakeout, I'm reading the transcripts. It's a 146-page transcript of, of Dad's Confessions and stuff. And I'm reading the transcript and it says, uh, Dr. Hodel and Baron Haringa go downstairs to the basement. They hear, uh, an object is struck. A woman screams. An object is struck again. A woman screams again. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, what the hell? Why aren't they out there five minutes away? Why aren't they out the door over there and making a rescue? They do nothing. These two detectives that are listening. And, um, then we hear, you know, don't leave a trace of anything and stuff. So actually, I have no doubt that there was an actual, it was, if not an actual murder, and attempt murder, but more likely a murder was committed on tape while these officers are listening. So they do nothing. Fast forward and, and basically, I don't know why they didn't do anything. It may have been, they were, it was only the third day into the stakeout and they're, and they're afraid that. You know, they'll blow the stake out. Maybe they should call a lieutenant and check with him. Maybe they tried. Well, for whatever reason, they didn't do anything. And it goes on for another six weeks. And that's, you know, so, so that's itself. Well, you also have to understand the timing of Los Angeles and politics. Bill Parker, Chief Parker, was literally weeks away from assuming command. He wanted to turn the department around, get rid of all the corruption, clean it up. Uh, George Hodel is in the wind. He's gone. Maybe they can find him. Maybe they can't. So I think they made kind of a Machiavellian decision to say, "Look, he's out of the country. We need to take command, take control. Uh, let's lock this away for now, and we'll come back to it in the future. But for now, let's assume command, and and we can turn the department around." So I think that was the thinking back then. Of course, they never came back to it. <laughs> I want to again
0: uh, thank Steve Hodel for a wonderful hour. Um, the book is a New York Times bestseller and as Steve has told us throughout that uh, it's one of uh, several books written by him about uh, the Black Dahlia case. This particular uh, uh, version, the, the I have the paperback with me. And as you said, it's, it was an update of a previous uh, uh, Black Dahlia book, but this is Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story and uh why don't and your um your website is if people want to reach is www i don't know if anybody uses it anymore steve hodel that's h o d e l dot com and there i think that's how i got you that someone can drop you an email they want to interview you they want to pay you money they want to have you you're an investigator have you been able to do any of that recently with all no,
1: i've been i've been a kind of involved dad's dad's uh, 50 or so crimes now i've got to get me busy so i i've kind of hung up my shingle on the pi for now um but i do i do keep up a blog and uh, which is really interesting i blog on a regular basis add new evidence new information a lot of which isn't in the book so you know that's also that's stevehodel.com's forward slash blog and yeah. uh, and like i say stay tuned a lot more to come uh, <laughs> All right, let me read you the quotes from the top brass on LAPD. Uh, This is from Chief Parker. Quote, we identified the Black Dahlia suspect. He was a doctor, end quote. This is from Chief of Detectives Thad Brown, who was the most senior officer on the Black Dahlia investigation. Quote, the Black Dahlia case was solved. He was a doctor who lived on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood. Uh, Lieutenant Jemison, who was the top ranking guy in the DA's office. Well, we know who the Black Dahlia killer was. He was a doctor, but we didn't have enough to put him away. And yeah, they did actually. And then finally, we have the undersheriff, of, undersheriff of L.A. County. The Black Dahlia case was solved, but it'll never come out. The suspect was a doctor they all knew in Hollywood involved in abortions. So you've got and these are all separate, independent quotes. And, and PD to this day uh, ha, says it's an unsolved and they they refuse to acknowledge my investigation. And basically their position is they can't defeat the evidence. So all they can do is say, we don't have time to look at it because they don't want to confirm that their two greatest heroes, Chief Thad Brown and detectives and Chief Parker were involved in a cover-up. you know, involved in this. So basically they have no choice. They, They just have to say, we don't have time to look at it.
0: Well, so uh, my friends uh, on Murder Most Foul, I hope you've enjoyed today, because I certainly have. And so in closing, I'd like to thank my guest today, Steve Hodell. And again, one more time, the book that I used as my uh, reference was the New York Times bestseller, Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story. Thanks a lot, Steve.
1: Okay, Jim. Pleasure. Enjoyed it. Take care.
0: Well, there you have it, gang, the story of the Black Dahlia. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you tell your friends uh, they can Get this podcast, Murder Most Foul, on most of the platforms. And uh, if they'd like to, if you'd like to drop me a line, uh, give me some, you know, some feedback. Tell me some cases you're familiar with that you'd uh, like me to cover. You can do that through the website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. Or send me an email directly, and that's uh, at Murder Most Foul 2021. That's Murder Most Foul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, 2021 at gmail.com. And until we meet again, take care. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.